You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you. And they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember... This is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know about another disability podcast that I think you'll love. The disability community is not a monolith. Within the community, there's people of different views, beliefs, and identities, and each individual person with a disability has a story to tell. And that's why we're here. Our podcast, You First by Disability Rights Florida, features firsthand interviews with disabled guests, scholars, and advocates covering a wide variety of disability-related issues. We have episodes on voting access, mental health, ableism in academia, disability and reproductive justice, disabled art, accessible video gaming, and much more. Our goal? To have you take away a new perspective on disability and bring awareness and insight to the world around you. You can listen to our latest episodes wherever you're listening now or visit us at disabilityrightsflorida.org forward slash podcast to learn more and find transcripts of all of our episodes. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get today started, shall we? 
First things first, I want to say happy Disability Pride Month, friends. July is Disability Pride Month, if you're listening and you didn't know. So what that means is you have to give disabled people money. No, I'm kidding. You have to just say um, just, uh, happy Disability Pride to any disabled folks that you know in the world, any disabled folks that you are friends with. Just wish them a happy Pride and celebrate their disabilities with them, and I hope that as you're listening during this Disability Pride Month, you celebrate yourselves, and you celebrate that we have a long way to go, but we're also really strong and powerful and important people as disabled folks, and I want to say that I am here for you, all of you, and happy Pride, friends, happy Disability Pride, and I, you know, I feel really, really honest to tell you that being proud of your disability doesn't mean you like it every day. I certainly don't like my disabilities every day, but I'm proud that I get to be here and share my story with you, and I'm proud that I get to tell you when my disability makes me feel like shit, quite literally, um, and I'm honored that I get to do that. So if you're feeling like you don't have anything to be proud for, that's okay. If you're disabled and you feel like you're not really happy about disability, that's okay too. If you don't really want to celebrate, that's okay too. But if you do want to celebrate, I think we should have a fucking Disability Pride Parade. Why don't we have like a fun Disability Pride Parade in July? Someone should do that. Um, That'd be so fun. We should totally have a like a Disability Pride Parade where we all shout and sing and celebrate Pride. Why has no one thought of this yet? Someone should do that, if they haven't already. But anyway, happy Disability Pride, friends. Let's get on with the show. On the show today, I'm pulling out a show that I recorded back in April of 2022. So about a year and a half ago. And I I have wanted to air this one for a while, and I thought Disability Pride Month would be the greatest month to air this episode. So here we are. I talked to my new friend, Drag performer out of Australia, trans mask drag performer out of Australia, Sev Faust. They are really cool, and we talk about a lot of things, and we talk a lot about, about their experiences with multiple disabilities, what it means to be a drag performer with disabilities, what it's like to have, to to live in a system where your disability insurance adjuster can follow you to a drag show to make sure that you are actually disabled. That happened to Sev, and they talk about it in the show. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. And they have a lot to share. And I'm really, really excited to learn from them about drag, disability, their experience of disability, and so much more. And so this episode goes all over the shop, but I really, really love it, and I'm really, really excited to bring it to you. This episode does, I want to do a content warning, we do talk a little bit about suicidality and suicidal ideation a little bit in here, so just be warned, that comes up right at the beginning, so if you want to skip through a few minutes, that's okay, um, well, we talk about a lot of things, and I love that we talk about drag and disability, I love the work they do that Sev does to put drag out there in the world as a disabled person with multiple disabilities. I love the idea that drag and disability can collide, and that's what we talk about a lot in this episode, plus a whole bunch of different 
tangents we go on. It was a really fun one, and I was really honored to speak with them. So, enough of my rambling. Here is episode 333 with my new friend, Seth Faust, on Disability After Dark. Seth Faust, hello! Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Hi, thank you for being on Disability After Dark. How are you today? Look, I don't know that anybody is doing 100% okay these days, but I'm doing as well as possibly can be. Well, that's all we can ask, really, is <laughs> that you're doing as well as you possibly can in these weird, fucked up times we're living in. Um, yeah, and what the audience can't see is you have green hair. I have very green hair at the moment. Um, I spent another week in isolation lockdown a couple of weeks ago, thanks to being a close contact. Um, thankfully, I tested negative continually. And Yay, good. Thankfully, um, and the person who I was a close contact of has recovered and seems to be doing okay. So that's all great news all around. But day one of lockdown I'm like yeah no uh, this this cannot stand and I ordered a box of bleach uh, and some new hair dye and I was like let's get let's get these isolation crafts started as soon as possible that, yeah and, uh, that's what you got to do during lockdown and I I emailed you this morning to make sure you were ready for the show and I didn't realize you were in Australia so when I emailed I was like I emailed you at like 1 p.m this afternoon and then I looked I looked back at my email chain and I was like oh no I emailed them at like 4 a.m. their time. Oh, no. So I'm sorry about that, but thank you for being here. Oh, look, not a problem at all. And some days you would have caught me at 4 a.m. because I am notoriously patchy at sleeping. But you caught me on one of those rare nights where I had exhausted myself actually uh, doing an activity last night and um, went went and played some putt-putt golf with my partner. It was very adorable. Um, and it just... Oh, tramping around that course oh, exhausted the hell out of me so I, I slept like an angel last night well that's good because I too have this body sleep where you wake up at like 2am and you're like oh I can't sleep I guess I'll watch some Golden Girls or some weird TV because <laughs> I can't sleep now it's like oh I, I am awake at 3am once again time for my 17th viewing of Stargate like, Atlantis or- yeah or like <laughs> Frasier or like some show that I've watched 85,000 times yeah yeah I'm current. It's currently Star Trek: Next Generation for me. My my three thousand viewing of that. Yep. <laughs> Are you watching Picard? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, uh, it's. I. I mean, anything Sir Patrick Stewart does, I'm like, yeah, I will follow you. Yep, sure, no problem. Oh, Earl Grey, hot. Like. <laughs> so Patrick Stewart is my old man transition goals. Hundred percent. Oh, amazing. I, mean, well, I support this so much. I support this so much. Um, okay, so you and I went off on some really awesome tangents right away. Cool. I'm glad we understand that we're both huge nerds. I like that. Uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Sure thing. Um, I'm Seth Faust, I'm also known as Lord Severus. I'm a trans mask, non-binary, drag performer, performance artist, advocate, um, opinionated loudmouth, uh, MC, uh, wannabe comedian, accidentally funny. Usually when I try and do it intentionally, that's when it bombs. Um, yeah, me too. I'm the same way. <laughs> uh, and I spend a lot of my time 
working in and around the adult industry, uh, both as a content creator of pornography, as a sex toy specialist, expert, uh, designer, marketer. Um, and I do a lot of live adult performances based in the fetish art, um, performance art space, um, burlesque, striptease, and drag. Nice. Awesome. And one of the things that, that you know, we talk on the show all the time, obviously, it's called Disability After Dark for a reason. We're going to talk about disability. Um, can you share with us what your disabilities are and how they play a role in your day-to-day life? 100%. So um, like a lot of disabled people, it's a bit of a, a laundry list of health problems, but I'll, I'll keep it to the, the core. Um, oh, no, you can go. You can, like, share with me the whole laundry list. Let's go break it down list. for me. All right. So um, as a teenager, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, uh, which is a interesting and complex chronic health condition, which causes inflammation, bone problems, muscle problems, arthritis, all kinds of bullshit. Um, I also have... I have a very famous friend with what you have. Do you know, do you watch the Try Guys? I do. So I have, I've talked to Zach on this, on this very show who has exactly what you have. So you're in good company because famous people, I don't have it. So cool. Seeing them talk about AS has actually been really um, beautiful, was really powerful for me. It was, uh, gave me an opportunity to share information with other people who might not understand necessarily what I go through. Um, we love that representation. Uh, yeah, I, would, so- I would love to, I would love to connect you with him and just pop an email and be like, I don't know what you're doing, but here's someone that has what you have. You guys are talking. I would love to chat because that's the thing there. Although ankylosing spondylitis isn't incredibly rare. Um, it is rare enough that I haven't had much opportunity to talk to other people who live with it other than my family, because it is um, hereditary that yeah. does pass in families. My mother um, has it and lived with it her whole life and her uncle had it. And so, you know, there's a, there's a big family history. And unfortunately, like, it's it's double-sided because I'm really lucky that as soon as I started having physical pain and disability issues, my mum believed me. My mum understood and helped me access doctors and get a diagnosis really early, helped me get support. And she had said that when she was younger, when she was a teenager, there was still a lot of very outdated beliefs about ankylosing spondylitis, including that it was only a disease, a disease for men and AMAP people. Um, so they didn't diagnose my mum for years, for absolutely yeah. years, even though her uncle had it, even though she had evidence and symptoms. Um, that sort of sexism and lack of medical knowledge led them to leave her undiagnosed and untreated um, you know, for pain management and stuff for so long that I was very, very lucky that as soon as I started having problems, mum recognized it and helped me get the help and diagnoses that would, you know, help me set me on the path of care. But as you know, like medical industry, it's it's complicated. And I've, even with that privilege, I've gone back and forth on whether I've been believed by doctors (laughs) and whether I've been able to access the kind of support that I needed. fun game to, to, to think whether or not you're going to be believed by a doctor it's so fun isn't it it's so great to be 
particularly when you add to that, that I started having mental health problems at a very young age and with mental health problems and as an AFAB person, oh my goodness, you would not believe the amount, I'm sure you would believe the amount of stress that trying to be believed by healthcare professionals who really want to dismiss you as hysterical. A hysterical woman, right? Right. Um, I feel like I've been looked at like a hysterical woman my entire life, usually when trying to get support for crippling pain, (laughs) Um, which is ironic because whenever I've tried really hard to pursue help for mental health, I felt like I've hit a brick wall. Um, That has changed a lot in recent years. So to to continue my laundry list, um, I also have um, CPTSD, um, depression, anxiety, I, Ooh, me too, I was, me too. Yep. Hey, hey, what up? How are you? What up? Um, I was formally diagnosed um, as a young person with BPD and then bipolar too. Uh, but none of those diagnoses kind of fit or stuck, stuck around for too long. Um, I was subject to a couple of institutionalizations when I was younger. Um, and frustratingly, they it took those to happen to help me also come to the uh, medical realization that these extreme episodes of mental illness, suicidality and um, breakdown were all connected also to my um, menstrual cycle. Um, It turns out I have a condition called PMDD, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and it turns something like PMS into an absolute minefield. Although these, the mental health problems I have are prevalent and affect me in my day to day life. The thing that, um, had always confused me so much. I've done so much work and so much therapy. I work really hard and I have so many tools in my tool belt and 95% of the time I have access to them and it still sucks, but I can manage and I can access my world and I have support networks and people in place. And 5% of the time, the hormones in my body flood my brain and just say, no, (laughs) no, (laughs) just no, just no. Um, And it's complete, it's complete meltdown. I have no access. I I talk about it as though being completely detached, having that part of my brain just not accessible to me. There are no coping mechanisms. There are no logical points to hold on to all I have is emotion and all of that emotion goes towards telling me I should die um that's fun so fun for you I'm sure and that comes around once a month so it's really really impactful um and incredibly frustrating and takes all of my other pre-existing mental health conditions and just shakes them up and puts them right in the forefront and asks them to you know, go wild in this, um, you know, no holds barred emotional setting. So I have to be very uh, conscious of my cycles. I have to be very closely tracking things because I can, I can literally to a calendar now, if I start having very intrusive thoughts, I'm like, oh, I should check my calendar. My period must be coming. (laughs) I know an intrusive thought is that now. And I didn't know that for 20 years, but now that I can, now I can feel it. I'm like, Oh wow. That's a really aggressive intrusive thought. I should check my period tracker. I'm like, Oh, 
due in five days. There you go. Um, <laughs> there it is. And I call it hell week. Like a lot of people who suffer PMDD call it hell week because you just know that that's the one week you can't do shit. You can't trust yourself. You're going to put yourself through hell. You're probably going to put the people around you through hell as well. And as somebody who oh, has always struggled with how much space I take up, how much care I require, I, you know, I've really had to fight to be okay having service providers come into my house and support me with things that I can't do. It's really um, hard. I have service providers come to my house every couple hours to help me do stuff. And it's, I'm grateful for them. I'm very thankful they're there. It's important, blah, 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 all that stuff. But also like, fuck right off. I don't want you in my house. Like, oh, oh, this, is, this is it, right? I'm so grateful too. And obviously it's care that allows us to live our most fulfilling lives. Of course. But most people cannot understand the amount of self-work and strength and humility you have to have to have sometimes people that you're meeting for the first time because you know so often service providers are changing and having to cover shifts and stuff um meeting people for the first time coming into your house while you're vulnerable you don't know them to do things that put you in a very vulnerable position do i have a story for you about that i met a, a new attendant the other day when I was having a shit, they just walked in my house. Oh my I'm, god! I'm doing the things, and they just walk. They're like, "Hi, we're here to train." And I was like, "Cool, I'm in the middle of a bowel movement. Could you not? Like, <laughs> Would you like you? to return when I finished this shit?" Oh yeah. my like, fuck! And I had to stay calm and be nice and be like, "Oh hello, nice to meet you." My ass is in the air. Like, what? How are you? Great. Like, you know, and I, I have anxiety and PTSD, right? Like, I, I don't always want people in my space either. Yeah. And there's nothing that's going to get me feeling more defensive or getting my guard up than feeling like there are strangers in my space. Oh, yeah, I know. You should have uh, seen the angry email that I sent to the management after. I was like, I, you, <laughs> this is not uh, okay. So I get the stress of, like, needing care and needing support when you don't necessarily wanted i fully am with you right there being like fucking no and like i um i've been really really lucky in the last year or so um i mostly have the same service provider uh coming in just a couple times a week um to help me with you know a whole manner of things but i was able my my the agency that supports me uh introduced me to a worker a few years ago and they were they immediately identified themselves as queer non-binary asexual oh fantastic um, neurodivergent you know just a, a, and we clicked very you know immediately i was like oh my people thank, <laughs> thank goodness i i and because they were so awkward in my space, they were like, hey, I'm going to be really awkward because I'm autistic as fuck. Uh, and you were like, was, cool, I'll be awkward too. Let's be awkward together. I was like, cool, me too, same. Please just try and be comfortable because, <laughs> like, I don't know how to help. Um, and we we got on so well. And now almost all of my care um, in home support is provided by them, which has made the world of difference because when you're comfortable with the people who come into your home you know oh I've, yeah it's easy it's like your friend is there hanging out a little bit i mean they, they're caring for you but it's a very friendly relationship exactly as as much as it is both professional and transactional that is also close to friendship which is yeah it's like really delightful. close to friendship. yeah yeah 
It's hard. That's hard to find in, in care. It really is. Um, so I consider myself very lucky um, because, yeah, it, it took me years to even be comfortable enough to accept that I I could really use that help. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, you know, I, mean, I, 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 I need the help every day and I don't accept it. I got, I, obviously, I accept it, but I don't like it every day. There are certainly days where I'm like, fuck, could you not be here? I really wish you weren't here right now because I want to feel emotions that I can't share with you because you're the worker and I want to have, I want to be upset right now. This is one of the big things I feel like of how, how observed our lives can feel sometimes because of the amount of presence of other people. And even just, I mean, I feel this constant state of having to justify the amount of help I need, unfortunately, not even to myself anymore. I came to terms with it, but because I, rely on uh insurance um payouts a salary continuation insurance after i stopped being able to work in my old employment um and in the past i've relied on you know disability pensions and that kind of support where you're cataloging all of the help that you need and how bad it gets and then having to recall it for people who are in charge of whether or not you can afford to keep paying your rent yeah, whether um, or not you're disabled enough to be disabled enough to deserve support. Oh, I know. It's a fun game that we play. So Having no. to reprove how disabled I am every month, every three months, to a panel of judges who are not disabled people. Isn't you know? that the most abhorrent thing? It's abhorrent what we have to do. It's just, it is, and you're not the first guest to tell me this. You won't be the last, I'm sure. I'm but sure. It's just, that makes my blood boil because... How the fuck can you, a non-disabled person that's never experienced disability, tell me that I'm not disabled? What? What? How? What? Exactly. And the the hardest thing is, for me at least, is not internalizing that. You know, like I've got a lot of trauma and I've got a lot of, um, you know, mental health problems and I... You know, I have a very good therapist and I work through things as well as I can and best as I can. But at the same time, it's very hard not to internalize the messages that you are surrounded by. And, yeah. you know, as, as a trans person and a queer person, um, you know, a polyamorous person, I, I, I've spent a lot of time challenging the concepts of the structures presented to me. But being inside the system as a disabled person, like, Every message you receive is either challenging your worthiness to, you know, live a life comfortably um, or challenging whether you're even disabled enough to deserve any support. Um, Obviously, COVID's been an absolute minefield because, I mean, I'm sure everyone you've spoken it's proving that all of us will encounter disability and that we, by the millions now we're encountering it because of COVID. And this is absolutely it. I am. Um, I noticed, uh, I obviously I have the most incredible empathy and fear for the millions of people who will be subjected to long COVID and disability because of this. Um, but I have to admit to, having had some pretty fucking ugly emotions throughout the process of watching newly disabled people 
come to terms with disability in real time through Twitter and over the internet and watching people have their first discovery of how fucked and broken the system is oh yeah um brought up so much anger and negativity for me because i mean obviously they these people discovering it for the first time are absolutely welcome to their indignation and their anger and they're wanting they're processing they're learning and like all um prejudices in the system you really don't know what you don't know um cis people don't know what it is to have a trans experience in this world and able people do not know what it's like to have a disabled experience in this world until they know. Yeah. Until Um, you know, you know, until you know, you don't know. And their, their anger is absolutely justified. But as somebody who has been trying to navigate the system for years, you know, a decade more, who has, who was told in the past that there was literally no way my job could be converted to a work from home position. And now um, look, and now literally everybody <laughs> has work from home options, but it wasn't possible when I was the only person inconveniencing a very rich corporation. Yeah. When right? I worked for a corporation, I had the same thing. Oh, Andrew, there's no way you go from home. There's no way in hell you can't. And I was like, why explain to me why? And they could never give you me a good reason. They would always say stuff like, well, you know, we need the workforce in the office. And I'd be like, uh, what? The culture of our place is very important. So we have to meet together in person. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I, we um, don't. Zoom is real. Like the internet exists. We can figure it out. It's fun. And productivity is actually better when you give people the space they need, particularly people who have accessibility needs. But, um, you know, you know all this. And I just think, the frustration that has built over this time where we're going to have to change our society. Like we're going to have to change the world literally because we had this virus and then we were, I was not coming in planning to do a quarantine until today, but here we are. Uh, (laughs) We're going to have to change this, change our, (laughs) change our, our sense of capitalism to fit this, this virus because it has to change. It has to. Um, you know, I, I came, I came to talk to you about, um, you know, sex and performing and fun things. But well, if let's I could go. Just... We, I mean, we can go. I mean, we can go right there. But yeah, but if I can just get on my universal basic income high horse for one second. Yes, please. Of course, I'll, go, I'll get up there right with you. Please get get right up there. Yes. Because if I, I, I mean, I'm I'm an extreme lefty. Um, it's it's no no secret to anybody. But like, not surprised. I, I I am also a cynic. Um, you know, I'm a lifelong goth and, you know, alternative weirdo. Like I but I do it in my heart of hearts, I'm a Star Trek fan, right? And I really do believe that there's a possibility that we have a Star Trek future ahead of us. It's only a one percent chance. We're not likely to go that way. <laughs> listen, listen. But we listen. could. If we can just get because you're watching Picard, so you'll understand this reference. And if you're not, if you're listening and you're not watching, get on it. If we could just have Seven of Nine be the president for like one minute, could, then you know, Seven of Nine could be a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. Yeah, oh, I know. I know. <laughs> um, no, hundred percent. Um, I, 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 the the tiny thread of hope that I have is that everything that we have been put through in the last few years, going through this pandemic, going through what it is doing to the work environment, to the economy, knowing how many more people are going to be disabled 
coming out of this and knowing how not knowing how that's going to affect an aging population and um ubi is uh, you know universal basic income is surely the only way economically that capitalism can actually work if this shit continues and i mean in canada i don't know what they did i don't know what they did in australia but i know in canada when the pandemic first hit they gave everybody two thousand bucks a week for Mm -hmm. uh, however long you need it now they were ridiculous afterwards and they made us pay it back through taxes because of course they did but but they all they gave us two thousand bucks a week and you could apply for it and so what that proves to me is you did it before you can do it again and everybody was fine it's it's fine everything will be fine in australia they raised the job seeker um pension payments they raised them with covid supplements and made a a couple of like one-off larger uh, payments to people yeah and the economy did brilliantly everybody wanted to put that money back into the economy it did stimulate yeah Uh, and yeah the thing that everybody i know who was on those benefits noted is that they were no longer living under the poverty line yeah they were were happy they could do shit they could live They were capable of not only paying their rent and bills and eating a food occasionally, but also experiencing joy and community. And it's almost like that shit's really vital to human experience. Right? Wow, shocker. Uh, And it's almost like when people are happy, they also quite happily spend their money in the economy. (laughs) I know. It's like, can you believe it? It's the real thing we do in the world. Just to cycle back a bit, one of the one of the real frustrating elements for me about the the system of you know having to prove my disability um, in order to keep receiving support payments that not only are you know am, am I right like I'm entitled to I I, I go through insurance like I, I was insured through my job my corporation that I worked for paid for insurance for me and i i'm insured that's my entitlement um but of course the last thing an insurance company wants to do is pay anyone anything (laughs) um so having to prove to them month after month yes i'm still disabled funnily enough this thing i inherited that's genetic and never going away is oh still there it's Um, dehumanizing to have to do that it's dehumanizing dehumanizing is the word that i use most of the time yeah because it it properly is it reduces you to your pain to your suffering and demands that you defend your right to need to pay your rent but not be able to work yourself to death to not you know yeah and also like you can't show when you're defending that stuff you can't show joy you can't be happy you can't Show them that you're like a, a fun, loving person, because then well, they this is it. They look at that and they go, "Well, what are you? You're, what are you happy about? We, you, if you're happy, you can't. No, this is exactly it. The expectation, the abled expectation of my disability is humble, noble, quiet suffering, and nothing else. They want yes. me to live below the poverty line. They want me to live a Spartan existence where I can barely." afford to eat and drink and pay my rent and pay my bills so that I'm grateful for the handouts that I'm given, you know, and the truth is that I'm a 
lover and an artist and I'm full of joy. I love life. I want to love experiences. I want to go places and do things and laugh and party and dance for as long as I can before I have to sit down again. And be awesome and have all that stuff. And date and film it and put it on the internet. (laughs) Charge well, people six dollars sixty-six a month. There you go, perfect. And I, I, I want to be allowed to visibly enjoy these things without worrying that a fucking private investigator is rocking up to one of my drag gigs to report on me to my insurance company. Please that tell clearly me that hasn't happened to you. Please. That literally happened to me. What? Oh, literally. <laughs> um. Now. I only know because I had already clocked the car hanging around outside my building um, a number of times in the two weeks preceding and that they were just like really, really obvious. There's literally one time when they were parked outside my front door, I was walking out with my walking stick to go to the cafe up the road to get a coffee. And they're literally looking at me with a, with a notepad. Like, <laughs> Are you kidding me? What the fuck? It's it's apparently quite common practice here uh, for insurance companies to periodically just send private investigators out to keep an eye on the people that um, uh. are getting regular payouts. And I got followed to a drag show. Uh, now, obviously, I was in full <laughs> costume. I was rhinestoned to the tits and giant dick. Um, <laughs> and I think we found the title of this episode, <laughs> to the tits and giant dick, is what we're going to be calling this one. Um, and I didn't use a mobility aid on stage that night. I was in quite a good place. I was medicated up to the eyeballs. Um, and I did my act. I had my folding stick in my suitcase because I always know that even if I'm in a good physically, uh, you know, mobility place, chances are as soon as I get off stage, every muscle in my body is going to feel like it's made of lead and I just, I need that extra support and balance. Um, but yeah, in the in the time between me uh, getting off stage, throwing on a civvy costume, going out round the back to have a cigarette, um, and spotting this fucking car again, <laughs> and then mentioning it to one of my castmates, be like, "Um, I think my private investigator's here," and that's really fun. They're like, oh, not the really obvious straight dude. Like, sorry, like, what? Like, there was a guy have... at the bar in a suit at a gay club, and he looked so out of place. I'm like, oh my god, I bet that's him. So we went back out in the car park to hang out and have cigarettes, and waited for this <laughs> dude to go get in his car, and he did. And the way he clocked me standing there with my walking stick, leaning up against this wall, clearly feeling like drained. Like, I love performing; it is my lifeblood. It it gives me it gives me life is such an overused phrase in the gay community but it literally gives me life it it's the spark of passion and creativity in me that like sometimes makes it worth getting the fuck out of bed i love performing but it does it's it's like a it's like a gas tank where i spend a week leading up to a show 
slowly filling that tank by minimizing all of my expenditure of energy, minimizing all the risk to my body, um, working really hard on minimizing the risk to my mind as well, practicing more mindfulness and meditation and journaling and just like clearing all the shit out of my brain so that both body and mind have the best chance of having a like successful uh, gig. Um, and then I'll I'll get up onto stage and I'll like open that fucking valve and I'll use all of that fuel in five minutes. And afterwards, it can feel like the tanks are completely empty, and yeah, it might take like days. Week. Yeah, it might take days to even get a bit of vapor back in there. Like there's a chance I will spend the next three days like literally not able to move. But I consider that trade worthwhile. Like that's that's the mental math I have to do for every gig. You know, with how how much time do I need to prep? How much time do I need to recover? And honestly is it worth it <laughs> and so, i now only do gigs that feel worth it and yeah the, and as you should do so let's i mean we kind of jumped all over the place there but let's let's talk to me about being a disabled performer and being a disabled drag performer and i know you said in the questionnaire that a lot of people are afraid to call you a disabled performer how do you feel about that yeah. look it's a really interesting aspect of ableism like it's such a it's such a little microaggression but it's something I wasn't really even conscious of until I actively started putting disabled in my performer bios um in my introductions to give to MCs for gigs and stuff um people take it out people take the word disabled out no yeah they're happy to introduce me as trans non-binary and trans mask sometimes um they're usually happy to identify me via you know my affiliations people regularly reference the kink scene bdsm community and you know sex toys because i've worked in that industry for so long you know people are happy to reference those things but almost nobody uses the word disabled when i ask them to when you ask them to they won't they don't they yeah i mean don't won't i i I feel like i'm it doesn't even feel conscious. Like it's such a microaggression. I feel like it's just a word. They're not sure whether they're comfortable saying or not. Is it the right thing to say? Is disabled person correct? Like I I don't, I, I think it's just, it maybe feels too complicated, but the other part of it is, I think because for the most part, people either see me with a, a cane or a walking stick or without a mobility aid I think for a lot of abled people there is still kind of this assumption where maybe my disability is too invisible for them yeah um maybe they would you know if if they could see my disability more clearly would would the word fit more comfortably for them probably I Um, think a, a lot of people feel like they need to have a marker of disability, a really clear, like I'm a wheelchair user, a full-time wheelchair user. So they have no problem saying I am. Actually, that's not true. They do have a problem saying I'm disabled. They'll say stuff like handy capable. They'll say stuff like uh, special needs. They'll say stuff like uh, handicapped, all that stuff. But if I said, call me disabled, they'd spend five minutes telling me why I'm not disabled. <laughs> exactly um exactly that and it's really it's been a bit of an uphill struggle for me because I um I worked 
I worked my uh, mobility aids into my drag aesthetic because I knew that I was, was going to be the only way that I was going to be able to have them when I need them was to always like work costumes around them. So I have, you know, I have stage canes um, that are a bit flashier. And, Amazing. Um, I'm here you know, for I've, it. I've performed on stage in a wheelchair um, a number of times um, when, when it was required. Um, and the, every time I've had to, it's always the, the first barrier was always, well, who the fuck's going to carry my wheelchair onto stage? Because I'm yet to meet a stage with a permanent ramp. Wouldn't uh, it be great <laughs> if they just had a ramp all the time on stages? I remember uh, when I went to Hollywood two years ago, just before the pandemic, I went because this podcast was nominated for an award at some big fancy semantic thing in LA. And I went there and I rolled in and I went, I didn't win. And my mom goes, how do you know you didn't win? I was like, well, there's no, there's no ramp to the stage. So <laughs> I didn't win. <laughs> oh, what an awful tell. Because yeah, obviously, I mean, I, I suppose better that assumption than you winning and then them realizing as you're trying to get to stage that they didn't put in a fucking way. I would have loved that more because I would have been oh. like, oh, now you have to do something because I have to go up there. I remember I did a drag competition, uh, Drag Royale, a couple of years ago now. And um, it, it was it's a grueling slog of a competition. Honestly, capacity-wise, I don't think I would have it in me anymore um, because it was one show a week every week for the whole season which I think ended up being 12 or 14 weeks and every week we were given the theme for the next week and had to create a unique show uh so it's just this constant cycle of creation and performance and about halfway through my body just crumbled and was like yeah I I can't I can't do this but also determined was like no I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up um and I'll, I'll use my chair if I have to. I'm, I'm just going to yeah. do it. I'm going to find a way to make it work. Um, and the energy in a room for a drag show, you know, it's always so electric. You know, as, as a drag performer, your job is party starter. You know, you're there to raise the energy and keep everybody um, captivated in good spirits and spending money at the bar. Like, that's your job. Yeah, your job is um, to be like the, the like outgoing really loud, really bright queer person in the room. Exactly. Like, everybody, look at me. Um, and there was such a strange, and not even bad, I'm really glad I enjoyed it because I almost enjoyed making people sit in the feeling. But I remember being in this in this performance space where the energy was already really high, the performers had been incredible, um, and then it was my act and my name was introduced, you know, introduced to the stage, Lord Severus. Uh, audience makes a hell of a lot of noise, great energy. And then this awkward, silent, very pregnant feeling pause where somebody had to carry my wheelchair up. I had to ask them to bring me a stage step because there wasn't even a step to get on the high stage. Wow. I I then had to have somebody bring me my walking stick on one side and then support me physically on the other side to help me crawl up these fucking stairs onto stage to then sit myself comfortably, like, and then rearrange myself in the chair until I feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. 
pass the stick off. It gets walked off stage. And I'm, I'm, I'm already stage lit and looking out over an audience who are all having to watch me. And I'm not able to. Keep I think the... that's incredible though. I think that's awesome because they have to sit there and feel that discomfort. And you're like, yeah, this is what it is because it's not accessible. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And a, a part of my, my thought at that point was like, I don't want to lose points in this competition for having, making people discomfort, you know, uncomfortable for seeing pain on my face, but there's no way I'm keeping pain off my face and the indignity of that off of my face. There's no way I'm hiding that. Um, because actually hiding that takes a lot of energy and I'm saving all of that to do the thing I'm actually here to do, which is when the music starts. So I let them sit in it and I didn't make a joke about it. I didn't laugh it off. I didn't hide my pain or discomfort for them. I'm not even, angry at the venue i know i know how much of a afterthought accessibility needs are it's fucked and it shouldn't be but i live in the real world and everywhere i go i see that it's not made for disabled people yeah um and these venues like their job is to make themselves mass appeal and you know turn over drink sales and sell tickets and shit and you know me having a moment of discomfort isn't actually their number one priority of a night but it certainly changed the way that I think about spaces I want to use when I'm producing shows of my own because I the first thing I'm looking at is how accessible is this space yeah. um not just for me but I you know I don't just want to be visible as a disabled person, I want to make spaces that are accessible. For I want to be happy people. as a fucking disabled person, not just visible. I want to be visibly happy as a disabled person. Yeah, I want person. to be comfortable, welcome, feel like it's a space that is actually made to and be And if that a means I space. want to go out and full bag and be a ridiculous performer for the evening, I want to do that accessibly. Thanks. Exactly. And I should be able to live joyfully and create art and work on developing my career whilst still being a disabled person who requires support and um, financial help and the understanding and acceptance that I don't have the mind or body that can work a 40 hour work week anymore, No, but I still deserve to love my life and I still deserve to try and connect and perform and create. You you know, you probably never did have the body that was, designed to work a 40-hour work week you probably had the disabilities way younger than you realized so you probably never did but you pushed through because we all do well exactly and i pushed myself into burnout more than once by trying to force myself to live physically and mentally like a person who doesn't have a massive laundry list of health issues <laughs> yeah um, um and that the the results like that burnout that follows you as well. It compounds your issues, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you more about the the performing part. What is Please. your favorite part of performing as Sev Fouse or Lord Lord Seven, right? Um, My favorite part of performing. So it's honestly, it's two things. Uh, one, one is a very selfish answer, which I'm happy to give because I, I don't mind being. Oh, yeah, give it. That. Go, give it. Um, stage for me. Like, I, I'm a, 
you know, I was a musical theater high school queer. So like stage has always been my Why am I not surprised in the least? <laughs> I, just, I sweat musical theater energy. I know. <laughs> um, yeah. I I have always sought that space when I was when I was a very depressed, really struggling, learning about living with pain full time teenager. Um, and I moved, I moved across the world. I moved from England to Australia when I was 15. I didn't know anyone. Um, my, 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 my people, I found my safe space. I found my community. I found the people who truly accepted me and encouraged me to grow. Um, I found them in those spaces. You know, they're queer people who are the the queer theater kids. So I found my comfort, my safety. Um, and I started getting involved in performing really heavily um, because I didn't have anywhere else to put my energy. I'd used to play sports and then my body started failing me and I didn't, I, I was, I went through such a huge period of mourning where yeah, let, let's my very talk, active, sorry. Yeah. Let's kind of talk about that mourning piece a little bit because one of the things that I love to interrogate when I, when I talk with guests and with myself too, is like disability grief. And I think it's something that we have, all of us who are disabled have it, but we often don't have words for it. And so that's why I talk about it all the time because it's very real. And so I'm wondering, it's very real. you know, can we, can you kind of go through like, what is that? How do you feel about disability grief as your body has changed over the years? The most interesting thing about it is it never, for me, it never stops. Um, a lot of my uh, conditions are degenerative, right? So I'm always learning where the new boundaries for my body are. Uh, and though that that's becoming a more restrictive circle. So even now I go through periods of mourning what my body could do two years ago. Yeah. Um, but for me, like that grief really started, um, when I was a, when I was a preteen and young teenager, I was incredibly active, incredibly sporty, like every, every team you can imagine, um, I was on it and I was doing club sports and school sports and extracurricular and competition and playing at state level. And I, I, I was, my, my father was also a, a professional sports person. So, um, you know, absolutely. There was a lot of, uh, validation to be had in my family from pursuing that as well. Yeah. I also thought I was going to follow suit and also join the Navy. So I was like a Naval, uh, scout and lots of assault courses and climbing walls and shit. I was of such a, such an active person, um, that when my joints started, you know, popping out and when my bones started just being so fragile and hurting so much. I know so many incredibly talented and inspirational disabled sports people, but I have never felt capable of expressing myself through sport again because it's still so triggering about what my body once could do and the future. Yeah. The future that I imagined for that body 
that, that it, it didn't died. exist. Yeah. yeah, that future died. And I, it, that's the, when I talk about mourning, um, the life that I could have had, that's kind of my disability grief. It's, I don't like doing it because for me, a complete change in direction for my focus and my energy actually led me to art and performance, right? Which has become so vital. So I I wouldn't want to change my experience, but you do, we all grow up with hopes for the future. Yeah. And so many of what those, you know, those hopes look like able-bodied successes and futures and images when you're a child growing up. So even when you're an adult now, when I, if I look at my if I look at my mind's eye and I see myself, I think, "Oh yeah, I'll do it," and I forget. Oh, there's disability in the way. Absolutely, like my dream version of myself has the capacity to keep up with my um, the amount of inspiration and enthusiasm I have for the work I do. If I could do what some of the incredible performers in my hometown do. Um, and perform twice a night, five nights a week. If I could do that, what I would do in this community, what I would do in this scene, um, I I still mourn the lack of capacity that would allow me to be the most successful version of myself Um, because I do feel like there is so much potential in me that can never be fully tapped because I cannot access that much energy. I cannot access that much capacity. Um, it's still a thing I struggle with. Like I wish I could unleash everything I have to give. Yeah. Um, and I, f- I feel like I'm only ever going to be able to produce a trickle of the work that I could have otherwise um, produced. But that being said, that's no reason to not put my all into that trickle, right? Well, um, I disagree. I think, I think, I disagree in joy for you. I think what you're doing and trying to do as a disabled performer, first of all, it's hard to be a performer, period. And I've only done drag like four or five times in my life. But when I did, man, it was really hard. It's really fucking <laughs> hard to do it. So I commend you because it's not easy to get up there. And to put on that show when you're hurting inside or when your body doesn't work or when you feel like you have no energy. I know. I I know. So I get it. And I think the more we have people doing what you're doing and putting a bright light on the fact that there's inaccessibility in bars and clubs and all these spaces while also being like, look, I can still do it and I deserve to be here. That's That's important. And I would just... I would just want to tell you to remember that when you're out there doing it, that, that you're, you're changing the world in some small way. Thank you so much. It, it's such a beautiful experience being up there because the, the, honestly, like I was saying like the selfish thing I get from performing it, it literally give it gives me a, it gives me an outlet that, I need to make sense of my experiences. Um, you know, my, my, my drag is particularly lowbrow. I'm, I'm a very corny, like every, every, every act is another dick joke. Like, um, 
it's just another excuse for me to make a kinky joke or a dick joke or show off something outrageous. Yeah. Um, but it's been so essential for me to stamp my own sense of power over my body, my sexuality, my gender, my experiences of gender. Um, you know, drag has given me all of these opportunities to, um, literally become my own transition goals honestly would you uh, say you're because i had something on the show a few months ago would you say you're a crip king yes yes exactly good because i mean we need more people doing what you're doing we need more people shining a light on this stuff but doing it in a way that's fun i want to ask you about your trans mask identity and disability and how I'm I'm curious because when you were talking, you were talking about like, you know, all those transitions. And I'm wondering, does your disability and being disabled the way you are have anything, have any connection to your trans mask identity? Such a great question. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced. Um, for me, it's all linked because my experience of my own body has been so uh prescribed by my experience of discomfort uh i knew pain before i knew myself right so i didn't understand dysphoria for what it was for such a long time um honestly until my 30s uh and i i am very classic pipe wired you know i was a sporty tomboy kid everyone said I was a tomboy in fact my family you know even the hilariously transphobic ones referred to me quite happily as a tomboy then um and you know would force me to go please put on a pretty dress because we're doing a family photo and you cannot keep wearing the same boys clothes oh I must and then I'd cry about it for an hour but that wasn't that was fine um, <laughs> um and I, uh, I didn't even really feel comfortable exploring femininity, uh, until I started doing it in a very performative sense. Like my yeah. first real feelings of comfort in femininity came from being a pro dom and from being a burlesque performer. Uh, to me, femininity was a costume that you put on and be sexually powerful in. And I just, I, that was kind of the only femininity I ever really knew how to access. Yeah. But it was also the femininity that made me uh, like sex seem and accurately uh, sexually aggressive <laughs> that made um, most cis het men not be a problem. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that's what I was always seeking was for cis het men to be a bit afraid of me. That's just what I needed. <laughs> You know, they're they're allowed to be attracted and they're allowed to pay me for it, but they're absolutely not allowed to think that we're on any kind of even level. Uh, That's and that, I, I use femininity for that, <laughs> to scare them. But my, I've spent so long not knowing how to connect with my body and through both, you know, physical pain and through mental illness, I've spent a whole lot of time um, dissociating. <laughs> Uh, and not not connecting fully with my feelings and my body because to connect fully with it is often agony that 
I, I think my, my trans mask identity suffered massively through my disconnect from myself. It took me so long to realize I wasn't just depressed about the way I looked in the mirror and so long to realize that I didn't hate my body because it just because it hurt. Um, also compounded by the fact that I didn't realize I was having any kind of um, sex characteristic dysphoria because I often felt that my discomfort around my body came from the fact that I am so used to being excessively sexualized. Uh, now, true story, I have been in the performing arts since I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. I have been doing productions since I was 16. I have had a number of reviews um, over the years for my musical theatre, you know, stage, cabaret, drag, burlesque, performance artwork. And every single, every single review that has ever been put in print about me references my tits. Every single one. I have never had a review wow. that didn't feel the need to tell everybody that I have gigantic chest. That's really misogynist and horrible, isn't that? I don't like Incredibly. it. Incredibly. No, yeah. I hate it. And I, at first I thought it was funny because when I was 20 something and I was getting fetish modeling jobs and I was shooting porn and I was doing alternative fashion week and I, and I was being booked as a, you know, stacked busty. I did the wonder bra more than a handful campaign, you know, like I, I've always been the big titted one yeah. to the point where like, like literally my, my local city newspaper published a review about a musical theater production I was in and everybody else got a breakdown about, you know, they're singing and they're dancing and they're, you know, captivating. And mine was so perversely sexual. And I mean that in a bad way for the only time I'm ever going to say it in a bad <laughs> way. Um, where like, okay, my character was a bit sexy and I did one act in a corset with a slow kind of torch number. Okay. But, the review was like, Sev's performance is so intimate. If it was any more intimate, someone in the audience is getting pregnant. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're incredible assets on display, making the room, you know, all pay attention to the, to the bright lights and glowing orbs. I'm like, could you fucking not, mate? Like, yeah. Could you just I also. Gross? I also sung and danced my way through that whole fucking show as the only plus-sized and disabled person <laughs> um, doing high-tempo fucking choreo and multiple quick costume changes. Can I get a hell yeah for the effort and skill? But I never can because all, all I've ever been feels like this caricature of this big-titted, um, you know, smoky, brazen whore and okay, look, I've traded off of that image. I'm, of course, yeah, I have. of course. Um, but I am a whole person, and as a trans person, who honestly, I still have very complicated feelings about my top. I don't, I don't know how I feel because not only have I been reduced to this physical asset for most of my life, but also like 
I'm an incredibly sensual and sexual person and I enjoy the parts of my body that get good sensation. Yeah. And the idea of interfering with that at all, considering what it's like to have a disabled body where I can't always bend and flex and feel and do the things that I would like to be able to do. You're like, well, I have a big chest. So I guess that we, I got my that. chest is accessible, reachable and sensitive. So obviously like top surgery is a possibility, but it's also a very complicated minefield. Yeah. I never even me. considered that until right until you said that. I was like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. If you're, if, you're, if the rest of your body hurts and you can't do X, Y, Z, at least you got your chest. Well, exactly. And like, I, I'm, I'm uh, extremely sensitive. Like I can, I can nipple orgasmic even. So like the idea of top surgery that would take that away from me, oh, I, I think, <laughs> I think I value sexual pleasure more than I do the aesthetic of a flat chest. I think I'm still trying to work it out, but I've got to say it's very hard to connect with the idea of either keeping or removing uh my my large chest when it has been such a focal point of other people's um perception of me and not just perception like literally my branding i when i first moved to this country um sorry that's a lie when i second moved to this country (laughs) because i came back here uh in my late 20s mid to late 20s um And, and you're in sydney right yeah I'm in Brisbane. Okay. Yeah. So we are. We were underwater recently, but the floodwaters have now receded. Yeah, I heard about that. My my sister's in Australia, so I heard about the joy that was that. Oh, it was hectic. Um, really, really hectic. Um, but yeah. So like my uh, when yeah when I when I second moved out here, uh, and somebody would say, "Oh, have have you met Sev? Like, oh, who's Sev? Like, um, a friend of mine said they literally the words were, "Oh, you know, big tits." British. And they're like, oh, yes, Seb. Um, or, you know, <laughs> big tits, British, pervert. Like, oh, yeah, that pervert. Would you like them um, to say big tits, disabled, cool person? Like what? I, I mean, I just, I just don't know that the tits need to be the first thing that I'm identified by. Yeah. Uh, and I, again, like I can say, I've traded off of it. And I, I expect most of the people who subscribe to my OnlyFans are... Um, <laughs> Are, are, are big breast enthusiasts like I'm, I'm I say I'm sure of it like I, I know they message me to tell me <laughs> let's talk a bit about about like sex work and, and disability for a minute um please do you feel like sex work as a disabled person is did you like did you get into that because partially like we know that sex work is more accessible for a lot of us because it allows us to pick our own hours, rest we need to, make money really fast, like, to survive. Was that part of why you wanted to do sex work? Or was it more you were performing already and it was easy to get into that and then there it was? How, how did it come to be? Honestly, it's a, it's a combination, but also a third route, which is, like, I entered sex work uh, through through uh, BDSM, through Fetish. Yep. Um, but also, I was already on a trajectory. My professional career path at the time was sexual health specialist. Um, I, my first job out of school was to become a service provider at a youth, a youth center that provided a sexual health services clinic. 
so it was like anonymous sexual health services for young people away from their family GPs um, so that they could, you know, have a more open, honest, candid uh, experience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I was giving advice, giving away free condoms, doing pregnancy tests, that kind of stuff. And like, um, and at 17 years old, I was really invested in being in that space. I really wanted to continue working in sexual health and education. Um, and at the same time, I was, um, you know, my 18th birthday, just around the corner, turned 18 and, you know, hit the ground running with entering the fetish community, BDSM community as a participant. Yeah, but when you're you when you're a bright eyed, bushy tailed eighteen year old in a you know sex store bought PVC corset running around your first fetish club, um, <laughs> you know I attracted a lot of attention and made a lot of friends and was very like I, I found a mentor very quickly who was a very well respected femdom in our local community in England, um, and she was a professional dom as well. Um, she offered to sort of show me the ropes ha-ha as it were uh and I was able to like learn a lot in a very small amount of time but it was great because I felt like I started my kink journey really um positively and really effectively with you know respected people mentoring me and supporting me and teaching me skills and things to the point where sort of six months into that mentorship she's like hey do you want to support me in the dungeon while I'm doing pro sessions and learn a little bit about the the professional end of things and I I took her up on that so I I I was I was helped into the industry um and it just it really suited me at the time it suited my sense of um sexuality I I needed it, it was the performer in me and the the sexual power I was really finding my stride in my sexual power and I was finding that there was more to me than pain you know and hurting yeah exactly and And there was something not only like as as I the longer I spent in the industry like I explored more aspects of sex work I've done just just everything uh you know from phone and text uh full service in person professional dungeon setups um in-house you know like the whole spectrum um some bits worked better for me than others I'm really frustrated because I would love to be great at phone sex I would love to be great at that because that feels like ultimate disability friendly yeah Uh, yeah I'm just I'm shit at it (laughs) that's surprising because I mean because I mean you're super chatty here but 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 then I guess when you're on the phone doing sex work they don't want you to chat so much they want you to like I, I just, uh, it's, it's like doing the same play every night for three years. There's no way to make that script sound fresh. I'm not that good of an actor. I'm just not. <laughs> and it, uh, my, my, the wall I hit with, with telephone sex work was just that there, there are like three fantasies that I was receiving just over and over and over again. It was like a, it was very scripted, uh, which was weird to me because people who came to see me in the dungeon had such clear, very structured, overproduced fantasies. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that. Like I, that was one of my favorite parts about that work. It was like, wow, you put a lot of thought into this. Like <laughs> let's work together to like make the closest facsimile of it that we can. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but but phone phone was very repetitive for me and i just i i would ju- i would just dissociate I, I would literally just I, oh shit what did you just say i've forgotten <laughs> could you, do you think you could turn the sex work on the phone into like talk about how you're a disabled person talk about how like you know could you could you make it something that's like yeah my body hurts but if you touch me here like it makes me feel i don't know is there a way you could play with your disabled body on the phone so that you could still be yourself and not have to like be this i love that and i i would love to explore that that's such a fantastic idea because this is the thing where i'm at now um for me at this stage of my life i'm um i'm only doing content creation uh, and even that is very limited. My subscribers are well informed that, like, hey, I am I am a disabled person in a tired, painful body, broken body you'll, that doesn't work. So, yeah, <laughs> you'll you'll get the odd photo when you get it, and you know, every now and again, I will surprise you by uploading something high quality. But it's it's pretty far, few and far between right now. And honestly, my OnlyFans works more like a Patreon where you get the occasional nude, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just grateful that people are supporting my work and horniness. Um, but, you know, absolutely now it's purely about accessibility. I am, um, I don't have the physical or mental uh, capacity or desire to do in-person uh, kink or uh, vanilla sex work anymore yeah. at the moment. Never say never. But uh, I love content creation because I love engaging with my own sense of sexuality, my own sense of power and my body. And it has only been, I'm going to say in the last like six months even, where I flipped the tone of my uh, interactions in that space a little bit to talk more openly about A, being trans and B, being disabled. Because... I realized the amount of um, internalized prejudice I was carrying within myself where I, despite existing on the internet and being a porn consuming pervert, I still somehow felt like people would find it a turn off that I was trans and disabled. Like I was just keeping that shit to myself. Oh no. Um, Tell the world. You should. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. As soon as I stopped being like, oh, but what if I lose subscribers if they find out I'm not a big, beautiful woman anymore? What if they knew I was a big, handsome man with a puss instead? <laughs> be like, uh, what if I lose subscribers? And realizing, like, actually, fuck that. Fuck that mentality so hard. I deserve my authenticity. And also, the nature of my subscribers they deserve my authenticity yeah and also they've responded so well and so positively and some people quite fetishistically like not gonna lie some people are very much like oh yeah daddy tell me where it hurts um and i there are there are lines of propriety obviously and i try and keep it jovial but educational um but at the same time it's such a exciting experience for me to be perceived sexually as a trans and disabled person like that's actually so empowering um i love i mean maybe that's the quote that maybe that's what the tag of the episode should be right there because (laughs) it is really important to be perceived as sexually as a disabled person but also i think the layer of transness is important too because 
for you to sexualize yourself. And I think given the stories you just told us about you being sexualized for every performance you've ever done in a way that wasn't something you wanted, this is your way of being like, fuck you. I can take it back now. I'm taking it back from you in the nicest way, but also pay, exactly. me, pay me money and I'll show you my <laughs> junk and then we're going to go. Exactly. Like, um, you know, having, having that sexualization forced on me, regardless of what I did for such a long time, um, and, and trading off of the power of that sexualization. Um, you know, I feel like it, I'm allowed to have complex feelings about that whole experience. You're but allowed now, to be a complex, crippled person. You are allowed. And now as a trans man making smut on the internet, being able to be proud and sexualize myself, enjoy my own body, enjoy my own giant tits from a trans mask framework and knowing that there's actually so many people out there who enjoy and appreciate. Um, and yeah, okay, obviously the line between appreciation and chaser, I've not been great at spotting it always. Yeah, me neither, me neither. <laughs> um, but even, I, you know, I would still prefer a chaser to a transphobe. <laughs> I have the hierarchy of bullshit that we have to deal with. Um, but honestly, what's been the most heartening, both in the porn space and in the performance space, has been the genuine uh, acceptance, enjoyment, and uh, a literal attraction of cis gay men to me reading my power for what it is. Um, one of the things that I'm really feeling in the performance space at this stage is the impact that my comedic and lowbrow levels of uh, masculine performance are being read as male and are attracting men. And and I, I'm a queer man. Like, I'm attracted to men. I, I'm really... Uh, I, I don't want to give myself the a false. Limit. Yeah, or uh, never, never a limit. Um, I, I refuse to say that I'll ever not be attracted to anyone for any reason. Like my my heart and pants are open. Um, <laughs> but I, my I heart I and pants are open. I think that's <laughs> maybe that's the tagline. I don't know. Maybe even wow. Um. And I, I don't need I don't need my euphoria to come from the approval of people who would find me sexually appealing, but it's nice. And I I started my journey um, as a queer person, knowing I was very queer. Like the the first thing I knew about me that I was very queer. Um, and as a young AFAB person, I was absolutely convinced at nine years old that I was going to be a lesbian. I was absolutely convinced, and then. And then I and then I met boys. I was like, oh shit! I like that. (laughs) I really like that too. How could I like boys, but in a gay way? Uh, Oh, Uh. took took me way too long to work it out. But um, you know, like I, I, I've come out so many times. I came out as a lesbian, then I came out as bisexual, and then I came out as trans and polyamorous and a gay man. And I was like, oh, except maybe not man, maybe non-binary trans mask. I don't fucking know. Amazing. Um, I, I, I love that it's it's always evolving. And I don't I don't want there to be an, an end point. 
I don't want there to be. I actually love that I'm on this constant state of flux. Um, and one of the most exciting things about the way that I've gotten to live my life and share my journey with people is I have really obvious changes in people's reaction to my presentation. The more fam I presented, fans reacted in certain ways and subscribers reacted in certain ways. John's reacted in certain ways. And the more mask I present, fans react in different ways. Subscribers react in different ways. Like I'm really fascinated by the experience of watching other people respond to my gender. Yeah. How do you think on the same vein, what is the response? Like, is there a fascination when they respond to your disability? Yes. Yes, there is. But that is different because so much of that, I think I've, I've only met a few people in my life who have openly stated an attraction for or uh, an attraction for people who are disabled, chronically ill, uh, people who have a history of dating people who are disabled and chronically ill. Um, Because it's such a thing that people want to generally underplay and there is also this difficult factor of if you're somebody who has dated lots of disabled people, are you a chaser yourself? Um, Issues that, uh, you know, it's very rare that when people want to talk to you, abled people want to talk to you about your disability, it's very rarely from a place of attraction. Their admiration so often comes from a place of... Curiosity. uh, Well, curiosity, but also I do fear that some of it is inspiration porn. Um, Yeah, unbeknownst to them, and like they might not have language for it or understanding for it. I I don't, but it's internalized ableism in that way that again is just microaggressions. I don't, I don't feel like people are intentional in it, and I do like inspiring people, and I do like being visible for people. but I'm also aware that when, when people want to react to my disability, it's so often on the, you're so brave. As opposed uh, to like, you're disabled, trans and hot, let's do things now. Yeah, exactly. It's usually the, oh, you're so brave, rather than the, fuck, that was hot. How cool are you? I yeah. bet that was really difficult. Like, yeah, it was. Buy me a drink. Yeah, <laughs> buy me a drink and let's go hang out later. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, tell me how cool and hardworking and hot I am. Um, I would much rather that. and. I understand that people are curious um, and I also understand that you can't know what you don't know. So a lot of people still assume that maybe the stick is an affectation for me on stage. Like I still have people who've seen me walk without a stick who then see me with a stick and are like, oh, is this a costume? Like, bitch, pay attention. No, my disability <laughs> then flux. That's what, like, no. It's like, you know, and to, to the same point, people who saw me perform while I was using a wheelchair, who would then see me afterwards in a stick, be like, oh, I thought you were in a wheelchair. Like, yeah, you you saw correctly. I was. Firstly, my conditions are in flux. And secondly, ambulatory uh, wheelchair users exist. Like, you should, you should, I just thought of this as we were talking. You should do a porn called Fucks in Flux. Can you please do that? I, I, I give it to that. you. 
I give it. It's yours. Take it. Oh, thank you. Okay, yeah, I, I, I will. I will credit you. <laughs> Fox and flux. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, it should just be an OnlyFans exclusive, like a series. Fox and flux. I, it's great, and you know, like one of the things I really want to see. Um, one, one of the things I have loved about the OnlyFans and you know, creator-driven uh, porn revolution for disabled people like in the disabled space is finally the inclusion of aspects of disabled sex that you would never see before like i I think disabled porn in the historically has all come from a point of uh, yeah yeah the abled gaze exactly um whereas now when power is in the hands of content creators um I really love that we're getting to see aspects of disabled sex and intimacy that you you wouldn't see in in porn or just in any kind of media representation of sex. Yeah, when um, I did my when I did my porn a couple of years ago, I remember being put in my lift and lifted into bed like <sighs> I like I normally would and I I that scene is still my favorite of anything I've ever done because they got to watch me be sexualized while I was in my lift and then he put me in bed and we fucked like normal and it was fine but I loved it because I was like you get to see this is my reality and I what I love about that is like if anybody if anybody watches that video who later wants to be wants to sleep with a disabled person they know or wants they they have a frame of reference that was hot yeah they've got a hot reference of a transfer um I remember the first time I saw a porn with a chair to bed lift transfer in and it was so, uh, it was so intimate and so sexual. It was so hot. Like it was a beautiful scene. Um, And I remember watching it thinking like this looks so much like so many Shibari performances that I've seen in fetish clubs, you know, atop the lifting um, their, their bottom into the air and positioning them, repositioning them. Uh, that the the connection, the intimacy, the slowness and intentionality of it all. I'm just remember like, fuck, that's so sexy. Why don't we see more of this? I so love that that was in your film. Oh, yeah, we need to see more of it. And if you know, we just need to see more of it. And I think the more disabled creators can get out there and make their own stuff. That's why I think Fox and Flux could be a series. Like I think it's so I great. I, 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 I'm absolutely stealing Fox and Flux. Oh, Let's take it. it! I give it to you. It's yours. Thank take you. it and run with it. Um, I could sit and talk with you for nine more hours because you have such a story. And I'm going to cut us off here because we could go on forever and ever. But I would love to talk with you more. Was there anything that you wanted to say that we haven't done yet? Honestly, my, my, my passion project, and I think, I, I mean, it, it's got fucks and flux written all over it. One of the things that I'm really passionate about, we didn't even get to, is uh, accessibility in sex toys, uh, making well, sex toys. Well, you know, toys. I don't know if you've heard about what I'm doing, but you've heard of Bumpin', right? Yes? The Bumpin' joystick! Yeah, right? Yes! So it's coming! It's coming! Oh, it's so exciting. I, I remember seeing the first promo images of it and getting so excited, realizing that the first promo images they put out 
it was a great teaser, but it, it didn't really show sort of function and scale and stuff. Yeah. Uh, reading through all the materials and writing up my own explanation of it and posting it out into the world just to make like signal boost it because innovation in this space is so lacking. needed, yeah. so lacking and is such a long time coming. And as somebody who is like, I've worked in like sex toy design and retail and marketing uh, and testing. And I, uh, I specialize in toys. Like I use a lot. Uh, and I, most of my content is toy based. Uh, and as my mobility changes, uh, particularly I've lost a lot of strength in my arms and wrists, which makes wanking real hard. Um, I also have lost a lot of stamina and I have a very frozen lower spine. So I can't bend very well. Yeah. I'm also. Um, very large bodied, which makes sort of reaching things really difficult sometimes. So sex toys open up access to pleasure for me in a way that um, I, I would really struggle to achieve easily in other ways. And that, that bumping joystick is just such a, one of the first things I've seen that truly started with the needs of people with mobility <laughs> concerns like truly yeah. started with a well if you can't hold this in place for long periods of time if you can't do large uh you know thrusting movements if you you know it really took the the needs and innovated for them rather than taking an existing toy and slapping an extra thing on it to try and make it more accessible. Right? And I mean, that's what we, you know, that's what we wanted to do. We really wanted to be innovative in the space. Like we really wanted to change the game. So I hope that when we have stuff, like I know Heather, Heather would love to, Heather and I would love to, when we can get prototypes and we can get things going, I'll, I'll make sure we reach out to you. Please, I would absolutely love that. I'm actually also in the process right now of um, applying for the uh, NDIS in Australia. It's our national disability insurance scheme. It would yep. hopefully open up more funding for um, me Well, to then you self- could probably get one. Well, yeah, I, I remember that was one of the first things I read about it was that it was going to be NDIS um, registered in Australia so that I could get funding for it as a, a accessibility tool for myself and that that's just the most beautiful news and that's like that's this is my real passion project here is how do we make not only uh people know that disabled people are hot and sexy um and also how to make sex properly joyful and accessible to everybody I uh we we need to keep innovating in these spaces. We need to create create new new toys, new devices, and yeah, talk about them openly, make porn with them openly so people can see yeah. them in use, understand the joy and pleasure of it. And so hopefully our future lovers know what is even possible. They have a roadmap. I mean that's exactly. why I, that's why I did the porn I did, because I was like, I want people to see here's how you fuck me. Here's how you make me come. Here's how you turn me on. Because people are so afraid that we're some alien thing that they're not used to. I was like, you need to see me in pleasure. Exactly. Um, I, I was actually like, as, as a final note for me, that that's, that's exactly it. Um, I think when people can see 
our hotness and our pleasure so much of that um that internalized ableism of desexualizing disabled people and infantilizing us so much of that disappears when they can perceive us as sexy and dynamic and experiencing pleasure i really believe that most most of my lovers most of the people that i have fucked they start out absolutely terrified that they're going to hurt me um the fear of causing me pain i i i can't I can't even really imagine how that must feel as an able-bodied person, unable to understand. It's probably terrifying. It's probably really it's pro- scary. It's probably terrifying. It's probably how I feel when I'm handling, you know, something small and fragile. And because I, I, I have spasms, I, I drop shit sometimes. I can't use my hands very well all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm often afraid when I'm holding something small and fragile. If somebody trusts me with something, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm definitely going to smash this. <laughs> and I worry that's how people who are trying to fuck me feel. Um, because they know that there are points on my body that sometimes if you touch them, it just fucking hurts. Uh, and they know that sometimes I will be doing something fine for 30 seconds and then my hip will just decide to dislocate and like, oh, it's not a great time. Uh, but trying to explain to these same people that I'm also a sadomasochist (laughs) that not all pain is equal. And I promise you, I will really enjoy you making me hurt sometimes. They're like, well, how does that fucking work? Wow. Um, There's so many possible tags for this episode. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Editing Andrew is going to have a shit time trying to figure out which one he is. I just, I really love that moment when somebody you know a dominant particularly is like seeing how i respond submissively and masochistically to pain for the first time when they truly see what pleasure looks like for me even under the uh, guise of pain which is something i live with and hate (laughs) uh knowing I, i you can see that switch flip you know people people being like oh wow there is there is real pleasure to be had here. And actually your body is so sensitive and so responsive to both pain and pleasure that you could have this incredible full body sensory experience. The possibilities start lighting up for them. You know, they, yeah. once they see my pleasure, they understand that, okay, yeah, this body has limitations, but it also um, has tingles all over. And it also has, the ability to make anything sensual because of how hyper aware I am of my, my skin. So it's almost uh, like your disability, even though it could be a pain in the ass, it can also be a pathway to pleasure. It is. And the more I explore it in those terms, the more I actually come to um, honor my own body and enjoy showing it off on stage as well like uh i've i used to be a a lot more of a frenetic performer but lately i've been trying to find a bit more stillness and gentleness and just in like live right in the moment and enjoy the sensuality of feeling my fingers touch my body and just let my audience go on that journey with me enjoy watching me feel myself um and kind of center yourself within your disabled body like that's awesome i think that's great yeah um just really put myself in the moment to be seen 
to feel myself and to show people the um the amazing things this body can do yeah I think we will end on that note because I could, again, I could sit down with you for like 90 million more hours. It was so fun to have you here today, Sav. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's it been was, such a pleasure. It was so fun. I, I seriously like fucks and fucks, make it up or fuck or whatever, whatever you want to call it. I will subscribe. I'm there for it. Um, and I, I had a, such a beautiful time talking to you. I love the work that you do, and I could talk to you for a thousand more hours. You're I would, lo- I, mean, I would, I would love to. I would, I'll, when I hit off, we'll you know exchange proper ways to do that because I would like that very much. Let's stay in touch. Uh, thank you uh, so much. But um, anytime. How do the people? How can they follow you and support you? Uh, please, uh, you can find me on the socials. I'm Lord Severus uh, on Instagram at Drag Lord Sev. Sev Faust and Lord Severus on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter and OnlyFans at Faust underscore 666. Um, and yeah, keep an eye out on the socials. I do occasional podcast uh, guests here and there. And uh, I'm looking at revisiting my old podcast again soon. So keep an eye out for that. If you need a place to put it, I do have a network. So we should talk about that. Thank you so much. I would love that. All right. Well, uh, this has been an, uh, another awesome interview and thank you, Seb, for being here again. And we'll talk to you very soon. Absolute pleasure. Take the best care. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Just before we close out to the regular outro that you normally hear, wanted to let you know that I've decided to relaunch a really simplistic t-shirt campaign of that little hashtag that I created a couple years ago, Disabled People Are Hot. And so I would love if you wanted to buy a shirt this Disability Pride Month that says Disabled People Are Hot. I would love to um, see you wearing that. So I'll put a link to where you can buy one. They're really simple. They come in white, gray, and I think blue. Uh, three colors. And they just simply say Disabled People Are Hot. In really simple, easy text. And I'd love for you to consider buying one if you want to show that disabled people are hot, but no pressure, but I'll put the link to that in the show notes today. And now the regular outro. Thanks friends. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for being here and shining a light on these stories with me. Thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can go to www.andrewgerza.com. Anytime, all my links are there. If you want to support the show in any way, we, you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and that will give you access to the show one day early, completely ad-free for as little as $1 a month or $5 a month or more if that works for your budget. Also, there are yearly amounts available there. So if you wanted to do that, that would be great. If you're able to, I would appreciate it. If you want to be a guest on the show, please email me directly at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com or andrew at andrewgerza.com. I would love to have you and shine a light on your story. Thank you so much for listening to these episodes and supporting disability content by listening to Disability After Dark. And we will see you for our next episode in two weeks. Thanks, friends. Talk to you soon.
Bye. Copyright notice. Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple and Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2023